0: Okay, so there used to be this show, right, called The Equalizer. And if you got into a jam, The Equalizer would show up and set things right. Well, I've got some bad news. There is no Equalizer. And that's why sometimes you got to show the bad guys who is boss. you got to stop being the universe's doormat and become somebody's problem on The Next Step Judgment. Fighting back. Real stories. About real people who decided they were sick and tired, and they weren't going to take it anymore.
1: That's it. Nine one one. What's the problem, ma'am? This woman has been taking my identity for the last five months. It's been a living hell.
2: No, I'm not going to leave
0: you alone. From PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment.
2: She's running.
0: Storytelling with the beat.
2: You won't believe this one.
0: I was rolling out of a restaurant in Hikone, Japan with my boy Fraz. And then I heard it before I saw it. And I saw it. A circle of gangsters beating the bejesus out of two skinny dudes. Ugly, horrific, savage. And for a long moment, we're frozen. We can't move. But then Fraz walks directly into the middle of the attack, taps the biggest gangster on the shoulder, and says, hey, man, what's going on here? The beating suddenly stops big gangster looks down the two skinny fellas catching the beating they stand there whimpering bleeding while the crew takes a break to rest their fists and the big gangster says, "Hey, these are bad guys and they need this beating." And Fra says, "Maybe these guys are my good friends. can't you just give them a break?" And the gangster, he's actually sympathetic he's like, "Yeah, Domineo." Da He's like, no, you don't understand. We have to beat these fools under orders or it's going to be us catching the beating. And while Fraze is arguing and telling them that enough is enough, the two skinny dudes just stand there, their heads bowed, waiting for the beating to resume. So I roll over to him. I'm like, hey, 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 hey. What you doing? Get out of here. This ain't over. Run away. Run away while you still can. Get out of here. But finally... Big gangster, he signals to fries, and he's like, this is business, but thanks for stopping by. And he gestures casually for the two skinny dudes to go back behind the restaurant, and they walk, obedient as baby lambs to their fate. And I just stood there. I just stood there and watched them go. One of the skinny dudes, he looked back at me for a second, just a second, and caught my eye, and I turned away from him. I have never felt so powerless, and I never forgot. Well, today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Fighting Back, stories about people who, for whatever reason, decide enough is enough. It all ends today. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. My name is Glenn Washington. Welcome to Snap Judgment.
2: Check it!
0: Someone stole your identity, took your name, your reputation, all of your money. They're busy eating lobster and crack crab with your loot, and you're busy at home with a can of pinto beans. It's not right, but like millions of people, that really happened to our first guest, Karen Lodrick, making her life a living hell. But life is strange. Turns out that while Karen may look like a sweetheart, this lady is the wrong person to mess with.
3: Message 1, 9, 59 a.m. Friday.
1: I had all these messages from my bank saying that there were these withdrawals. And I'm like, oh, God, well, that's not me. I went down to the bank, and when I get up to the teller, she opened up my account. She gave me this look like she was scared. And she turned the screen around, and there were just lists of charges. <laughs> So that was when it really hit me. I'm a victim of identity theft. And after that, it was kind of like this cat and mouse chase because I would close one account down, they would open another. Within three, four days, they just had drained everything. It was almost like I gave a criminal the keys to my home and they could come and go when they wanted. So the bank, they were like, since there were ATM machine withdrawals, maybe there will be some photos. Would you be willing to view them? I viewed the photos. It was um, this woman, and most of the photos she was wearing these big sunglasses and this big, funky, fuzzy coat. So I got a copy, and that was it. This one day, I came home after a day of running around at different banks and whatnot. And I got a phone call from a bank manager saying, are you going to come pick up your driver's license? And I said, what? And I said, you know, is it a blonde? And he's like, no, it's brunette. And so we've kind of figured out that. It was her picture. I said, I will be in first thing tomorrow morning. I'm going to come get that. So I went down there, and the bank wasn't open yet. I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go get a coffee. And as I'm waiting, this woman's standing there and I noticed that she has a big fuzzy coat and she's wearing big funky Gucci glasses. I noticed too that, you know, even though she had this fancy coat, she hadn't looked like she bathed for a few days. My whole body was shaking and I thought, could this be her? And she was with a gentleman and then they went outside and sat down and I thought, well, I'm going to go sit next to him. And I'm like, what do I do? Call the police. And I'm like on my cell phone next to the table next to them, and I'm going, "Uh, excuse me, could you just bring the police here? Because I think the woman who stole my identity, I think she is sitting right here. And they said, okay, well, we'll send someone out. Great, okay, hang up the phone. And then next thing you know, they stood up, he went one way, she went another. In my brain, I'm going, okay, you can do this without her noticing. You've watched lots of cop shows. So I shot around the bushes, and she walked around this recycling area. This guy that was around the recycling area, he looked at me, and he looked at her. I guess he noticed this, like, little thing happening between us. He's like, do you know her? I think she stole my identity. He's like, you know, you're not the first person to say that about her. That's it. Nine one one.
2: Hi, this is San Francisco nine one one. What's the problem, ma'am? This woman has been taking my identity for the last five months. It's been a living hell. Mm-hmm. Somebody to come to um, Laguna and Market. She's running.
1: She starts running up the street and jumped into a taxi. I start running up after her. I looked right at the cab driver and I said, "No!"
4: He is a Christian.
5: Yes, okay. you are. Are you chasing me? I am chasing you because you are a Christian. You better wait. If you're not a Christian, wait. No, I'm not going to leave you alone.
1: And then she darted across the street. Just before she crossed, she dropped a Prada wallet. I just looked in the plot of thing and she has my name in there. Oh, my God. It's okay. freaking high, man. Oh, somebody better get here because I'm ready to slam her against the cement. We went around the one block. We went around another block. <sighs> I don't know where she is. She might have went in this building here. Oh, God, I'm so afraid she's going to jump out at me or something. And I heard this alarm. There was a postman there and... I was just like, what just happened? And he's like, I think somebody tried to get into this building and the alarm went off. I ran through the parking garage and then ran back and she was gone this time. he got away from me. I can't believe it. Oh, my God. 911 was like, would you want us to stay on the line? I was like, no, I mean, I'm like, what's the point? She goes, you know, he's right around the corner. He'll be there any minute. Within three minutes, police was there. I told him I lost her here. I don't know what happened. And so he's like, just just wait here a second. And he walked around the parking garage. And next thing I know, he's pulling her from behind a car. I was just like, hallelujah. She looked like a deer had gotten caught in the headlights. come to find out it was a gang of like seven and they were stealing mail from the neighborhood and from that they were just able to pretty much um become me the police in the fraud department because I have an, a reward for you I go you do he took me down to the recruiting center and said hire this woman she would make a great cop you know I'm still thinking about it <laughs> you could
3: drop me anywhere
0: Kudos to Karen for chasing down her nemesis. Now, Karen is still fighting the good fight. She didn't take the job as a cop, but did go on to a new career in crime fighting. Today, she's an identity theft expert who teaches others how to protect themselves. You can find out her tips on her website, fightingbacknow.com. And Karen is also an advocate for victims of identity theft and helped develop the Identity Theft Council. It's an organization that supports victims and works with banks and law enforcement officials to fight identity theft. We'll put links to both on our website, snapjudgment.org, and big thanks to Snap's own Mitzi Mott for putting that piece together. Kind of nice, huh, Snappers? That's right. Way back in 1969, serving alcohol to a known homosexual would get you locked up, but the Stonewall Bar in New York City was run by the mob, and they would sell to anyone. The police, they raided it. One night, one hot summer night, Matthew Levine was in the right place at just the right time.
6: It was a Friday night, and I had a date. I was at the bar getting drinks for both of us. We had just finished dancing, the music was blaring. It was a combination of beer and cigarettes and cologne. Suddenly, as I'm handing money to the bartender, a deafening silence occurred. The lights went up, the music went off, and you could hear a pin drop, literally. My boyfriend rushed in from the dance floor. He walked over and said, put the drinks down, let's leave. We go out into Christopher Street and there are what look like a 100 police cars all facing the entrance and crowds of people looking at us. The kids coming out of the Stonewall, the onlookers, the police, everyone was just kind of standing there. It was not a riot in the sense of people breaking furniture and police hitting people over the head. It was just an enormous crowd of people. And then the police start to say, okay, everyone leave. And the drag queens, they're the ones who said to the police, we're not leaving. I am what I am. And they formed a chorus line outside in front of the bar. And they stood there dancing in the street. There were all Puerto Rican drag queens and Irish cops. It was a funny, funny confrontation.
7: A riot broke out at the Stonewall Bar in Greenwich Village. The gay patrons who were used to raids on bars where they chose to meet decided that they wouldn't take it anymore. Men in dresses kicked up their heels as lesbians and others threw bricks and coins at the police. After five days of riots, a modern gay rights movement was born.
6: When we came back on Saturday night, we stood there on the street, held hands and kissed, something we would never have done three days earlier. It made me feel wonderful. I stood there with chills. It was like when you're watching a parade and the flag goes by. And in the week that followed, I got phone calls from relatives, cousins, my brother, my aunt. We're just going to find out if you're okay. We know you go to places like this. I was a homosexual person coming from an old-fashioned Jewish neighborhood, living in Greenwich Village on my own. I felt the same. I felt comfortable. But I felt the world now is more comfortable with me. And Stonewall did that for me.
0: mess with Puerto Rican drag queens, you might get dealt with. That story was brought to us by StoryCorps, our beloved comrades in this here story business. Check them out at StoryCorps.org to hear more short and sweet and funny and sad stories. Production was provided by Snap Judgment's own Stephanie Fu. Now. Remember all those times you wish you had said something, you wish you had stood up, taken on the bullies and the idiots and that brother-in-law of yours, and given them exactly what they had coming. Well, fret no longer, my friend. You're listening to Snap Judgment, and this week we're fighting back so you don't have to. Storytelling with a beat continues right after the break. Snap Judgment. to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. And this episode, we're calling it Fighting Back. You know we like some espionage here To Snap. See, Hervé Joubert spent much of his life working for French intelligence, but he gave up all that 007 stuff to have a normal family, a normal life. Then one day, he was approached by a businessman with an offer to move to Dubai and open up a commercial submarine factory. So he packed up his scuba gear, and
8: moved to the Arabian Peninsula. I went to Dubai to to build a factory and submarines. So it was a a company specialized in the manufacturing of submarines. I knew about the Middle East. When I was a covert operative, I spent half of my life in Middle Eastern countries to do uh, covert operations. Libya, Lebanon, uh, Morocco. So I I knew about the Middle East. When I told uh, around me, my friends, my parents, relatives, uh, that I was going to Dubai, many, many uh, people warned me that maybe it's not the right place to to go. Well, I have to admit that I did not believe them. But also, I'm kind of an adventurous guy, so I said I wanted to take the challenge. They gave me the title of CEO. From there, it was chaos and and madness with the deadlines and people working uh, 14 hours a day. Dubai actually does not have money. The money they use is the money from investors, but they don't have money on their own. So uh, soon they realized that they could not afford anymore a submarine company because they just, they just did not have the money, so they pulled the plug. When they decide to pull the plug, they want you to pay back your salary. They were after me, and that they were doing extortion, nothing but extortion by a government company. Dubai, is, uh, it's only 250,000 people, 1.5 million people who live there, but it's only... 250,000 Emiratis. the rest, it's expatriate, foreigners. So they all know each other. They, they all have a cousin or an uncle uh, in the justice system or in the police. So when a company has a problem with you, he calls the police, either a friend or a parent or a relative, file a claim or ask the police to arrest you. They don't need to prove it. All they have to do is to accuse you of something. So I was arrested three times. I was interrogated three times. It's an interrogation room. There is no window. I was questioned by two officers in their traditional dress, you know, the white robe with the white scarf. Uh, One was playing the good cop. The other one was playing the bad cop, uh, really nasty. He would tell me I would never see my family again. They would lock me up in a hole uh, deep underground. They wanted me to confess so many other things that I was a mercenary, that I was in Dubai to kill someone. They threatened me to be tortured if I did not confess. He gave me examples of what he would do to me, which was to insert needles in my nose. I've been in the intelligence service for a long time. I've never heard of that method. He talked about it like he was used to do it. It did not sound like he read it in a book a week before. Of course, I did not confess anything. They told me, give us $1 million and we give you your passport back and you can go home. I decided that I would not give them one dime. Because I'm a former intelligence officer, I decided uh, to escape the country. What I had to do is to play their games. I had to satisfy their ego to make them happy and to make them believe that I would give them the money that all I needed was time to realize the amount. And they gave me two months. In 2009, they arrested 800 people who were trying to leave the country, uh, using different ways, fake passport, real passport, whatever, it doesn't work. Dubai is a cage. And then you have the ocean. I knew, I knew I was going to escape on a boat. I'm a sailor, and also when I was a covert operator, that's the way I used to go in and out of countries on a boat. Before I escaped, I had to identify an escape point, like a beach. I explored the entire coast. I was looking for patrol boats, uh, police boats, because once you're under the water, I did not want to be uh, pulled over or checked by a police boat, or I did not want them to chase me or anything. I found a good one. However, there was a small patrol boat. So I decided that I would sabotage that boat to eliminate the problem. If somebody spotted me on the water, they would never be able to start the boat to chase me. I had somebody to ship me my frogman equipment. But I say frogman. In the US, the people would use Navy Seal. The frogman suit—it's a rebreather, so when you breathe, you do not produce bubbles. So it's a quiet way to move under the water and stay unnoticed. And then I put my equipment on. And you're talking about 50 pounds of equipment here, it's heavy. I could not go around with the military frogman equipment on me, so I put on the abaya which is the black burqa that Arabic women wear in the Middle East. It's the best disguise you can wear because once you wear the abaya, you become invisible. Nobody's going to talk to you. Nobody's going to look at you, not even a police officer. So when you are covered head to toes with the with the burqa, with gloves, all in black, you are invisible. So I put the abaya on top of my equipment. I look like a fat woman, but who cares? I will never forget... That feeling, I mean, walking through the lobby of a hotel with a military frogman, disguised like a woman. And then when I went outside, a friend took me to the beach. I went in the water. Swam in the Coast Guard station. I climbed on the boat to clog the fuel lines. It's like one o'clock in the morning. All lights are off, nobody's outside, nobody's watching. I'm all in black. I even trained my eyesight to night vision, you know, like a week before. I had a special diet and a special training. So when I was on the boat, I didn't need a flashlight. Uh, I was extremely focused to what I do. So after I clogged the fuel line, I I went back in the water, back to the beach, back to the hotel. I took a good rest, uh, took a good meal, because the next day was the escape. I bought a sailboat. I had a friend who took my sailboat and sailed it to international waters. I could not do it myself because when you go out on a sailboat, you need to show passport, you need to ask for permission. We met at the marina. I took the rubber boat from the sailboat. The rubber boat was on the sailboat, so he put it in the water. On the rubber boat, it's not a problem because nobody's gonna ask you anything on a rubber boat because it looks like a beach toy. So with my rubber boat, I was taking like an evasive course. It's not like going straight offshore because it could look suspicious. So I was kind of circling around, you know, like I was playing, but going away and away and away, little by little. Uh, I had set up a rendezvous point with my friend. I had a GPS. He had the same GPS and it took, I waited six hours. Once I was in the international waters, I had a tremendous feeling of freedom. So I was watching the ocean, and then uh, I saw the mast. It looked like a toothpick on the horizon, and that was uh, that was my sailboat. Oh, I, I felt <laughs> that that's a very uh, powerful uh, feeling. I mean, it's lo- looking at my boat coming to me. You know, the boat got bigger and bigger on the horizon, and. Uh, I was so excited that uh, finally, I finally made it. I finally made it. Hervé and his buddy
0: sailed to Mumbai, India, where he sold his yacht and hightailed it home to his wife and kids. Now, his business partners took him to court in Florida, but they lost. Hervé is chilling. Check out all the gritty details in his book, Escape from Dubai. We'll have a link on our website. Most people, you see, they go shopping in Dubai. Hervé, he's busy escaping from it. That story was produced by our own Anna Sussman and Natalia Yeager. Now, how you fight back on our Fighting Back show, it often depends on where you stand. We recently had an artist salon right here at Snap Studios. And this young blood, Chaz Jackson, took the mic in order to break down how he is fighting for his family.
5: This is a collect call from the Rappahannock Regional Prison. Will you accept the charges? And I don't have time to ponder that question. I immediately press zero to connect the call with my mother. This call is from an inmate from a correctional institution and is subject to monitoring and recording. As if I didn't already know that. This is not the first, nor will this be the last call I receive from prison. Jump. Every time an 888 number shows up on my cell phone, have to excuse myself whether I be at work or at church. See, these precious moments cannot pass me by. She is living in times where 18-hour lockdown has become routine and answering to officers is habit. HBO shows like Oz and The Wire have molested my imagination into a high-definition picture of the hellhole where you currently reside. There are two things in this world that should never happen. One, a parent should never have to bury their own child. And two, a child should never have to visit their own parent behind bars. It is unimaginable. Not knowing the next time you'll embrace, it is unbearable. To have to communicate behind a glass barrier, it is unsightly. To see your mother, hair braided in two French braids, dressed in a tan jumpsuit. You see orange jumpsuits? For the glitz and glam of television purposes, tan is given to criminals, messages be subliminal, hope is often minimal, tan is the same color as dirt forcing criminals to contemplate ending it all, returning to the earth, tan is for black girls who considered suicide when the rainbow wasn't enough. And I want to tell her that though you are in jail, you are not of jail. Then I remind her to pray, but she tells me that she has forgotten how, tries to say the name J-J-G, but her lips cannot form the words. so I pray on her behalf, calling out the name of Jesus, Rabbi, Teacher, Prince of Peace, and I could go on. But then an automated voice comes over the phone and says, there is one minute remaining on this call. Then she tears up, and I do too. But she will never know. She will never witness warm tears nestling down my cheeks. No, I've got to remain strong for her. For now, I will be your knight in shining armor, your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I will be fond memories of age three, right before your parents separated at age four. I will love you evermore. We exchange a dozen I love yous before simultaneously hanging up the phone, never allowing our 60 seconds to run out. No, we control our own destiny. And mom... If you have previously forgotten everything that I have said, then always remember this. Though you did what they said you did, you are not who they say you are. So the next time I hear, this is a collect call from an inmate from a correctional institution, the answer is always unequivocally yes. I will accept the charges. Chaz
0: Jackson, Chaz Jackson, this young brother. Is a poet, an actor, a teacher, a screenwriter, an artist extraordinaire. You're going to be hearing a lot from him. He's busy changing the world, letting us know we can change the world with him. Produced by Rita Daniels. Now, if you have a story that you would like to share, by all means, let your light shine. Snapjudgment.org. Leave your own story and listen to others. Full Snap episodes, movies. It's Snap World, baby. And we've got all kinds of special goodies popping up on the Facebook and the Twitter. Now, I've got a piece from the brother who electrified the Snap Judgment Live show, Mr. Mark Bamoody Joseph. A story about Rwanda Sue, who fought back her own way.
4: Rwanda Sue, Thick ass calling him brown chick. I was trying to hit that. I saw my man Tone last week I know that he knows her cousin Hodge I say, Hook it up he says, what you like about Rwanda Sue? And I'm honest I say, I like her eyes He said, you ever been up in her crib? Yeah, once He said, well, I gave her a lift home one night on some cool And we got there She says, you want to come in? I said, yeah, I want to come So uh, I park We walk up to her spot And she puts the key in the door Then she turns to me And swear to my mother She says, I have x-ray eyes and can see I am not who they think I am Crazy remembered mirrored images Melting like summer into autumn With Pollock vehemence and hollow determination Biting me with sinister these mirrored lies I strike back at the demure of these mirrors Holding in, reflecting back They have seen, but they do not know me I am not who they think I am They have not heard me amidst the dripping blood And humble silence And I'm looking at Tone And he's looking back at me through the silence I'm like, well, what happened next? And Tone reflects Then he says, after a second, she looks at me and says You ready to come in? All straight face, like she ain't just say some bugged-out... But I'm gonna let some afro hippie chick pug me So I'm like, oh yeah, no doubt Chris Rock's on, you got cable She says, yes, and unlocks the door And dude, I f- not, there was cracked glass all over the floor And the walls were blank where mirrors used to be She says, I have x-ray eyes and can see I was like, well, I'm going to see my home. Thanks a lot. She says, no, wait, listen to me. And her eyes look like mine do. When I think of crosses burning on my front lawn, she is trembling like Muhammad with scripture newborn on his tongue. And I am black man hung on her every word. Meanwhile, I'm hanging on tones every word. He says, she says, I have destroyed the memories and mirrors. They show me nothing but the sickness of pen Hawk. Hard fist. God, this hall of mirrors had to go. They watched death, my life, their cinema, his knife, entering flesh, forlorn, foregone for one moment in time, times the magnitude of my mind. I murdered the witness who stood still and watched, and I'm watching still, frozen. I don't know why she shared this with me. Shards of glass gleaming on the 1930s, hardwood sea. I moved past her and seized a broom and swept. Tones telling me this, and it's a little bit more intense than I had bet it. So I was like, alright, blood, just get it. But the fetid rank of his swollen eyes said it. When face to face with the reflection of your own assault in the mirror, you too might become a memory killer. No more questions about Rwanda Sue. That was him, I told you. He floats like
0: a butterfly, stings like a bee. Mark Bamoody Joseph, electrified the Snap Judgment Live. We can't wait to get him back on the show. Now, you are listening to Snap Judgment, the Fighting Back episode. Stay tuned. We might just have to bust somebody in the teeth. Judgment from PRX and NPR. Now, it was my first job, my first day on the job. I was a dishwasher at Ponderosa Steakhouse in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with the world-famous all-you-can-eat salad bar, right? So I'm in the back of this busy, bustling kitchen, and, you know, doing what I'm supposed to do, wash up all those dishes. And out of the kitchen door, I see this guilty-looking man sneaking out of the restroom, but, you know, I don't even think anything of it. I got work to do. I'm working through this stack of plates. And then I notice it's just me. A few moments before, there were at least 10 people around me doing various things. And now I'm standing there all alone. What? And then the kitchen door flies open. It's the manager and he looks around, looks around. And I'm the only one there. Hey, hey, you, new guy, come in. And I'm like, yes, sir. What can I do for you, sir? I need you to get in that restroom right there and clean up everything till it's spick and span. I want to be able to eat off of that tire work. All right. I open the door to the restroom and snap us. This is NPR. It would be against FCC regulations for me to describe the horror I met upon opening that door. It was an abomination, an affront to all that is good and decent and holy, smeared all over the place from me, the lowly dishwasher, to clean up. And I knew, I knew I had seen the dude responsible for this mess, and I vowed to kick his behind right then and there, and I ran from the restroom into the dining room searching to deliver the punishment he so richly deserved, but, but I couldn't find him. snappers. I had murder in my heart. I couldn't find the restroom criminal as much as I looked. I couldn't fight back that day. Not that day. But today on Snap Judgment, people can fight back. And let the record reflect, Mr. Poopy Man, I ain't done looking for you. And I've got your face seared into my memories. It is not over. Now you'll find all kinds of weird folk in the subway. And as much as you want to stare at them, Most of the time, you got to keep your eyes on the wall, minding your own business. But one day, Alan Wolfson, he saw something he just could not ignore.
7: I'm 24 years old. I'm living in New York City. I was traveling from uptown to, I think it was Christopher Street. I get on the train, and at 42nd Street, Times Square, the train stops, and a few people come in and I'm sitting in the sort of the corner of the subway car, and across from me is an old man with a cane. There's also a young kid standing up. First, I didn't think too much about it. Then the next stop happens. At that point, I could see that the young man is very agitated, and before I know it, he literally kicks the old man in the chest. Just karate kick, and the old man doesn't have anywhere to go, and he just collapses forward and starts breathing heavy. People just started getting up, yelling, screaming, getting out of the car. I got up, but instead of getting out of the car, I went up to the kid. I said, what the hell? And he pushed me and then said something like, That old man is a faggot, he's trying to pick me up. He was sticking his tongue out at me, and he came at me again, and he pushed me. So what I did was I I left the car looking for a cop, and sure enough, there was a cop walking towards the car that I was in, and I called him over, you know, yelling and screaming at him with my hands, come on, come on. And I went back into the car, thinking that the cop was behind me. I went up to the kid, and I just was like, I don't know what the hell was going on, but you're gonna get into some serious trouble here. The next thing I know, he grabs me by my coat, and the train is going back and forth. And I'm trying to get loose and swinging at him, and he's swinging at me. And at one point, with the motion of the train, he let go of me. My shoulder cracked the glass, and my entire top body just went outside the car as the train is moving. And immediately, I came back in. Of course, at that point, I could have been decapitated. But what really pissed me off was my glasses fell off. And I was so angry that I went and I, I jumped at this kid and I was about to punch his face so hard. And just as I was coming towards him with my fist, I see a pair of handcuffs go on the kid's hand and the cop pulls him away. So I'm, I'm like lunging at this kid and I practically fall into the other window. About two weeks later, I happened to be at 42nd Street and I was just leaning against a column waiting for um, the train to come and uh, going to the same place. All of a sudden I'm looking down the station and I see this kid walking, the same kid walking towards me. Like I thought, oh god, now I'm going to have to get into this big, big fight now. The worst thing that could happen to me is I'll get (laughs) thrown into the tracks and killed by a train, but um, the kid sees me. and. Instead of getting into a fight, the kid comes up to me and thanks me. He said, man, I am so sorry. Thank you for, I could have killed this guy and I could have been in jail and all that happened. And we start talking until my train comes. And that's basically it. That's the whole story, really.
0: Now that story was produced by Snap Judgment regular contributor, I can't call him that right, regular contributor Mr. Nick Vanderkult. please check out his amazing podcast, Love and Radio also Adrian Mathewitz Adrian, along with Snap Judgment's own, Stephanie Fu this next story comes to us from what you might call a dangerous neighborhood right here in California in fact so dangerous that this next young woman barely left the house at all as a child. She was so scared. She stayed inside watching TV while her mom worked long hours. And as she got older, she started seeking a family that would really protect her. I
3: was, you could say like a loner. I was very quiet and I didn't talk to anybody. I practically had to, like, raise my little sister, my mom. She was, like, working at McDonald's. There, there was things going on with my dad. Oh, my dad sexually abused me from ages 5 to 11. And my brother, around that time, he was, like, gang-banging. I felt like I needed to belong somewhere because I was tired of being alone and not having anybody to talk to and confide in. So I just turned to my brother's friends since those were the closest ones that were there. At first, it was like nothing big. During lunchtime, we would just all gather up, a little group of kids, try to punk other kids or stuff like that. It felt good, like I felt like I was powerful. There was just a one girl I remember in particular, I would just pick on her. So I would like follow her home. I'll tell her that she needed to watch her back just intimidate her but then things started getting more serious because those kids would tell their older brothers or sisters and since we lived in a rival gang neighborhood at that time we all lived near each other so they knew where I lived at so then one day they just came to my house
2: we
3: were just watching TV and then all of a sudden we just hear a whole bunch of like windows break and everything They destroyed the whole front part of the house. and My dad, he was just trying to hold down my brother and me so that we wouldn't go outside. And I just remember like, my sister running into the closet, and she was just yelling for my mom. Well, then after that, it was just payback. I liked the lifestyle that I was living, the respect, and how I felt like people were actually scared of me, and people actually wanted to be my friend. I sort of hid the abuse by acting like this hard gangster that I really wasn't. I could take out my anger on guys, you know, for what my dad had done to me. He stopped the day that I had put a knife in his neck and I told him that if he ever tried to touch me or even tried to touch my sister, that I was going to kill him and call the cops. After that day, he never tried to touch me. It was February 1st. And that day, one of the guys that my brother had problems with, we started fighting. The securities got there and pulled me off of him. The cop, I remember he told me, oh, you're going to do a walk of shame because he had arrested me. And when everybody was getting out of school, I was in handcuffs and they were like walking me out to the patrol car. Well, they were just smirking and laughing and pointing at me. In a way, I felt proud because I didn't care. I was just like, man, whatever, you know. I started hanging around with older people, and this time, because they didn't want to get their hands dirty, they wanted me to do the dirty work. So I would do as as they said. One day, they were getting ready, and I was at their house. They were just talking like, oh, you know, are you going to put the rag over your face? And I was just like, what are you guys talking about? They both looked at each other and then looked back at me, and then they're like, oh, we think you're ready to you know, to bust your first mission, to do your first drive-by. So I got nervous. Right at that moment, my brother walked in. He's like, oh, you know, what are you guys talking about? They pulled him aside and they started talking to him. And they came back in and my brother had stopped him. He told him that he didn't want me to have anything to do with that. They called me and they told me to take my sister to the park. Because my parents were always working, so I would take care of my sister, and I took her. And then they started playing with her. And then one of the older girls, she pulled me aside and she's like, we already found a nickname for your sister. I was like, oh yeah, what? She had said, angel. And then she's like, yeah. We think she's ready, you know, to get jumped in. And then that's when I was just like, what? Like, she's only 10. I told them that I was going to think about it, but it was most likely going to be a no. And I just took my sister home that day. I was sort of getting tired of always having to do everything they wanted to do. If they wanted to drink, I had to drink too. If they wanted to fight, I had to go fight too. Or if they wanted to jump my brother, I had to jump my brother too. I, I didn't like that. All the things that I had to go through, why would I want to put her through the same thing? Getting beat up, having to watch over your back to see who's coming. Like, I I wasn't at peace. I decided that day that I was going to stop gang-banging completely. I just didn't want that life for me or my sister. I had to be smart about it, though. I didn't want them to be suspicious about me not wanting to gang-bang. Because if they were suspicious... I'd probably be known as trash. If I'm known as trash, then they have a right to like, beat me up every time they see me. Even across the street, there's been like four drive-bys in three days. I started like studying and doing my work. I was doing good and you could say I was back to being a schoolgirl. I was taking some criminal justice classes. All of the students, they were all like high class type of thing, you know? They were dressed all nice. And then I went, and I was just, you know, I was just me. I was just simple. So I felt like I didn't fit in, and it seems like everyone's had a better type of life. I want the best for my family. So that's why right now, like, I'm working, and hopefully with the money that I can come up with, we can move somewhere else.
0: My block. Today, Our storyteller works for an anti-gang task force. She's graduating from high school soon and she's working as a waitress at a restaurant to raise money for her family. Much love from the Snap, doll and Keep doing your thing. Please leave them knuckleheads alone. Now, have you ever listened to Snap Judgment and thought, well, that was alright. That was pretty good, but I can do something better. I got something everyone's gonna love. Well, There's talking and there's doing, my friend. Go to our website, snapjudgment.org, and submit your own story. That's where we found this next piece. It blew us away. (laughs) Tanya was growing up in the boonies of Oregon. She was in middle school and was getting all ready for bed.
2: And when I went to sleep, I thought the biggest thing that would happen is that I'd get up the next day and go to school. I was jolted out of sleep by the sound of gunfire, which was not something I expected. When I came out to the front room, my mom was on the phone with the state police, and someone was shooting at our house. There were a lot of good old boys in the area that thought it was a lot of fun to play with guns the way small children play with pop guns. They were shooting the trees, the ground, items in the yard. The police said they wouldn't be coming. They were marking it down to just random good old boy behavior. The very next thought that occurred to me was that my mother was about to handle things. We had a very thick cedar tree, and she sent me to stand behind that as being the safest point. The scary part of the night was seeing the light on in front of my mom's closet. That's where my mother had a small arsenal stashed handguns, rifles, as she would reach into that closet the way other women would reach into a spice rack to fix a recipe. She was a Vietnam-era army drill instructor. It was playtime for the woman of the house. She appeared as only my mother could, silently from out of the darkness. She wants to know how many, where are they, and she pushed some leather pouches into my hand for me to hold. Well, at first... I could see kind of a glint over her shoulder and I thought it was her rifle. I thought, oh, that's a little out of hand. It was not the rifle. That was her prized muzzle loader. It's a little like holding on to a very, very small cannon. They're very dramatic. I'm standing in the dark with my mother behind the tree while she's loading the muzzle loader. There's 22 shots still pinging around in the yard around us, and I'm standing there realizing that she's gonna shoot somebody, and she's gonna do it right in front of me, and there's not a thing I can do about it. She listened, figured out her bearings, and just stepped out from behind the tree and smoothly aimed, and this huge tongue of fire comes out the end of it, and it's a huge boom that just goes ripping through our little valley. I heard them start screaming, my mother had just shot somebody. She's such a good shot. She's totally smooth. She's totally calm. She's already working the tamping rod and reloading for another. That's when I realized that the one pouch she wasn't opening that was in my hand was the pouch with the shot. She was shooting blanks. It was just an extra charge of powder and wadding. And I know it's okay to laugh at this point. we can hear them trying to get down and in a fair degree of pain getting through all the thorns she just treated them to the scare they thought they were going to give us and she's looking at me with a rare big grin on her face and she's saying want it again get
4: back, get back. you don't know me like that get back, get back.
0: Now, they say we don't get sentimental here at Snap Judgment, but did you hear that last story? The mother and the daughter together in the woods, one holding heavy machinery, firing at the bad guys. I tell you, it warms your heart. Snap Judgment. Now, we're rolling into the final dock right now. We've dealt with everybody that needed dealing with. But don't be sad. Do not be blue. We've got hours of snap love on the website snapjudgment.org. Podcast, music, and don't forget to hit us up on the Facebook or the Twitter. Now, Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. No way. Never alone. Please, let me introduce the hardest working and best looking team in all of media. First, put your hands together for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie Fu and Anna Sussman's fingerprints are all over this episode. It's called Fighting Back, and for some reason, they really got into this idea. I have no idea why. Rita Daniels and Will Urbina bring the pain. and that crack, production, talent, super squad, Pat Mercedes Miller, Mitchie Ma, Natalia Yeager, and Renzo Gorio. Now, if the in-laws are coming by and they need a place to crash for a few months, well, <laughs> that's a real problem you got on your hands. Who knows what to do? I just know what not to do anymore. Please don't call the corporation for public broadcasting. Yeah, they, they got all kinds of attitude when I try to talk about Glenn. This is wholly inappropriate. Wholly inappropriate. <laughs> Otherwise, they are fantastic. Many, many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media, PRX to the ORG. And please know that this here, this is not the news. This isn't even close to the news. In fact, you could move to a new city, meet your cool new buddy who takes you to an underground fight circuit, and then start fighting your cool new friend before you realize, hey, he's not real. He's a figment of your imagination, man. He's going to blow up the city, dude, if you're not careful. What is wrong with you anyway? What the hell is going on? You could experience all this up close and personal and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.